0: Turn, if you will, again to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Look this morning at verses 17 to 20, the other half of the paragraph we started last Sunday. As we continue our way through Matthew, we come to a discussion of the church. Anytime I talk about the church, I'm reminded of a of a statement by my old seminary professor, Ed Clowney, who wrote, an invitation to ecclesiology, that's the doctrine of the church, sounds rather less appealing than a guided tour of a cathedral crypt. So I hope maybe it's a little bit more interesting. But um, here we go, because that's what we come to. If you doubt that, come with me to a presbytery meeting sometime. And you may find yourself gasping for some unchurchified air. Nevertheless, the church is a matter of great concern to our God. So if we're uninterested, we don't yet have his heart. Let me read our text this morning. Verse 17 to 20, Matthew 16. Peter's just said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. This text is uh, what I call a a pit of theological mire. Just about every phrase is controversial. And I've noticed when I read uh, that suddenly people who spoke kind of like had something to teach from the scriptures just get caught up in the in the disputes which most of which will never all get resolved and so my desire this morning is to try to avoid that uh quicksand and instead feel the weight of the profound truth which permeates this whole text we just stand back a minute and don't feel like we have to solve every problem and listen to what it says. And that truth, I think, is summed up in Jesus' statement, I will build my church, which will become for us this morning three points. So the first point is this. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church. On the shelf in my study... I have a whole section on books of church planting uh, about church planting and church growth. There's the birth, care, and feeding of the church, understanding church growth, sharpening the focus of the church, theological perspectives on church growth, and many, many more. Now, these are good books. Many of them have been helpful to me. But the truth of this text, if ignored, will nullify nullify all the advice of all those books that are good books. For Jesus says, "I." will build my church. Now notice where Jesus says this in this text. In verse 18, right in the middle of the theological issues which hijack this text, while theologians argue, and this is a huge argument about Peter's position in the church, Jesus makes this statement that eclipses everyone else. Peter and the other apostles certainly have a foundational role, but Jesus says, I am the one that will build my church. This is clear in verse 17, just prior to this section, Peter made this great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But Jesus made it clear that even Peter's confession was not the result of Peter's superior intellect, It was not a sign of some moral achievement. It was not a sign of some special gifts. It was the work of the sovereign grace of God to illuminate those who naturally understand nothing. That emphasis on God's sovereign initiative, not human insight, is consistent with the rest of the Bible. For example, Jesus said in John 6, no one can even come to me unless the Father draw him. As we read through the book of Acts, we hear things like the Lord added to his church and things like God granted repentance and things like as many as were ordained to our eternal life believed. It's the same thing Jesus said in our text this morning. I will build my church. You can argue about Peter's role, you can argue about the apostles. You can argue who's the rock. Jesus says, I will build my church. I mean, we think that such a doctrine which hangs all of our salvation, not on our wit or insight or uh, good intentions, but solely on the grace of God. You may think that doctrine is cold and harsh, but Jesus says Peter was blessed because of it. Blessed are you, Simon. Blessed because there is no other hope. Blessed because if God wanted, waited for us to be smart enough and good enough, no one would ever be saved. No one would ever do anything. Blessed because apart from such grace, we all stand condemned. Merrily going our way, sinning and dying, always thinking that we're good enough and we're not. Peter needed to hear this. Jesus had chosen him for an important role in the foundation of the church, but Peter was unfit in a bazillion ways, especially, <coughs> but especially unfit until he understood that it was not Peter who would build the church and made it great, make it great. It was Peter's Lord. And we need to understand this too for nothing has changed, Jesus still says, I will build my church. That's the first one. Then there's a second point here. And that second point says, Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church. I remember back in 1979, Beginning to plant a church in New Jersey, we met in a rundown Grange hall grown up in weeds on the barren walls of that rundown building was only one thing- a shovel on the wall, which I guess was a memorial to the dedication of that building many, many decades earlier. As I preached, I could see people shivering in the cold and the cold metal folding chairs, which we had, until the heat came on, and then it got really interesting for when the heat came on, little balls of dog hair came out of the heat registers and rolled across the floor like little miniature tumbleweeds. Week after week, I wondered to myself, is this church going to make it? <laughs> Will we really survive here? 12 years in that Grange Hall. When I came to the chapel, I was excited to be here and they gave me a lot of stuff to read to learn about the chapel and it is something, by the way. And included in that was a report of a study that had been done some time earlier evaluating this ministry of the chapel. And when I finally got down to reading that and found my way through the whole thing, I realized that this study basically concluded that the chapel should be shut down because it was not a viable church and I go, Oh, lucky me. And once again, I begin to wonder, is this church going to make it? Will we survive? Several years later, a minister who attended the chapel for a brief time graciously, gently took me aside one day to warn me he said pastor Bert, you obviously don't know this this church is about to blow up in your face there are just too many conflicting points of view here no two people agree by this time i knew better and i told that brother so for you see jesus promised I will build my church and the very gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus does not make such an assertive statement about the success of his church out of ignorance of the problems that it faces. He he knew that Every known obstacle, and and he knew that this huge one would be the very gates of Hades. But even in the face of that opposition, his church would still survive. So what are the gates of Hades? Well, some translations read the gates of hell, and that has given rise to all kinds of ideas and pictures of the church storming the walls of hell somehow to break it open. But the reading gates of hell only confuses the issue because actually hell is normally translated, the translation of another word, Gehenna, and not Hades. Hades simply means the realm of the dead. No emphasis on place, no assumption about judgment, just a collective view of the dead. Hades speaks of all that oblivion and utter futility that characterizes death. Only here, that realm is seen as a power, like we might speak of the Grim Reaper, perhaps. It's a power which no one can withstand. It's the ultimate realm of defeat which will only wear us down and bring to nothing every human dream and scheme. Well, we understand something about this, don't we? No matter what you plan, no matter how hard you work, in reality, decay and death will take their toll, Something, sometimes suddenly, sometimes slowly, but always bringing to nothing dismantling all you've planned and labored for. But, says Jesus, not my church. Not my church. We know this is true, for when they laid Jesus in the grave, Hades could not hold him. On the third day he rose from the dead, and today that same Risen Jesus is alive and is building his church. So, this morning, I want to encourage you you who feel the power of death with its finality, which creeps in and gobbles up all our hopes and dreams, hitch your life to this Jesus, for what he's doing will endure. Those joined to him will be raised with him and will live in eternal life with him for Jesus will do what he said. He will, he is building his church. Finally, there's a third point here. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church. The year I turned 20, Bob Dylan was singing the times they are changing those lyrics were radical but they were true in fact even those calling for change back then are probably sometimes distressed by how far the change has gone it seems that nothing is immune even the very institutions of society are being turned upside down and the church has not escaped that upheaval of society Many believe the church is an outdated dinosaur, which needs to be abandoned. Even among Christians, many now perceive the church to be a, a much less, much less than an organized uh, thing. Uh, many look now to parachurch uh, ministries to do what the church used to do. Perhaps we just need to admit that the church has become a relic and move on to which Jesus answers no I am building my church so I'd like to address two particular misconceptions concerning the church around in our day what there is as first confusion between the church as an organism and the church as an organization Increasingly, Christians have abandoned the idea of the church as an organization and now perceive it almost solely uh, in terms of an organism, an informal unity of uh, Christians wherever they're found. Fewer and fewer fewer see any need for any kind of organizational structure in the church. It's not supposed to be an organization, But in our text, when Jesus speaks of the church, it is also an organization. It has structure. Peter and the other apostles formed the foundation. The New Testament speaks of a body of teaching, which was the standard. It was called the Apostles' Doctrine. The leaders are defined. We know their names. And the leaders clearly know the members' names. Similarly, it has Accountability and in chapter 8, Jesus speaks of the keys, the keys that are uh, the authority to open and close the doors of the kingdom. And, and with that authority comes responsibility to receive members who embrace the gospel and to expel members who turn away and deny the gospel. You see, when Jesus talks about his church, it's more than an informal gathering of believers wherever they find one another. It is also a defined organization, whether we like it or not. So don't despise this aspect of church life. It's from the Lord. The structure, the accountability, God designed that. Second issue, we need to distinguish between the church and the kingdom. Many people just assume, well, that's the same thing. We sing it that way. I love thy kingdom, Lord, and really we always talk about the church in that song. Matthew speaks repeatedly about the kingdom of God, but in all the whole book of Matthew, only here in chapter 16, and later in chapter 18, does he mention the church. You see, the kingdom is different than the church. The kingdom is cosmic in its, in its significance. Everything in heaven and on earth has been placed under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what we read in, in, in the Gospels, what we read in Daniel chapter 7. Everything has been subjected to him. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. That means Christians, the citizens of his kingdom, must labor to make his rule known wherever they labor, in government, in education, in labor, in industry, in art, in science, in families, in communities, many of you are deeply involved in that kind of thing. Christians who find themselves working in the same field together will support one another in their common uh, conviction that everything that we do belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and must reflect his glory. And so in every field of endeavor, we find Christians seeking to speak with one voice, working together to have a unified witness, and laboring together to bring every thought captive to Christ because it belongs to him. That's kingdom work. That's the secret kingdom growing in every discipline and every place in the world because it all belongs to Christ. And it's just a time before it all becomes obvious but as citizens of the kingdom live and labor in the midst of the world that does not know the king how are they equipped to do that where will they learn about the king where will they learn about the nature of the kingdom where will they find support for their struggles where will they be how will they be kept pure themselves who will hold them accountable That's what the church is for, which Christ ordained. The church is not called to hold the reins of every kingdom work. Not possible. The church can't control everything that's going on in every industry and in every school and in government. The church can't control that. The Lord Jesus controls it. But the church is not called to hold all those reins, but it is the place where entrance to the kingdom is to be found. It is the place where you're equipped for kingdom work. It is the place where, equip, where, where uh, accountability to the, to the king is not forgotten. It is the place where servants of the king stop to worship together. Indeed, it's when you peer through the windows into the church that you see the kingdom already functioning As you hope that it will someday in the world when you pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is building His church. His church. Oh, He's also growing His kingdom, permeating like like yeast throughout the whole world. But He's building His church, this organism, this organization. And He calls it His temple. He calls it his sanctuary. He calls it his body, his bride, his family, his children. He calls it his field, his flock, his fruitful vine. He calls the church his chosen people, his holy priesthood, his treasured possession. Though disparaging the church has become pretty commonplace both among Christians and certainly in the world, don't you despise Christ church. Imagine that your best friend is getting married and he asks you to make sure his bride arrives to the ceremony on time. So what would your friend, the groom, think if on the ride over, you insulted his bride and told her she's ugly? railed on her for being such an unworthy loser and made it clear that even though she's marrying your friend, you have no respect for her. Well, that's how many treat Christ's bride, his church. Folks, Jesus says, I am building my church. If you know and love him, Your love is church. Business deals, political schemes, personal ambitions, they capture our imagination, they capture our hopes, they capture our allegiance. But all that pales in comparison to this. Christ Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, has revealed his plan, his dream his hope for real change in the world and in our text he speaks of it clearly i will build my church and though through that church he will accomplish his saving plan for the world and advance his kingdom in the world so i ask you this morning is that where your heart is Is that the passion of your soul? To see people of every description joined to Jesus as part of his church and to see that church flourish, glorious and strong, even in the midst of trouble and persecution? More specifically, does what goes on in this church among these people matter to you? Are these people... Ones that you cherish in this world. Because they're the Lord's people. His body. His bride. If not, you're out of touch with the Savior. For the building of his church is his passion. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father... We easily get sucked into the attitude that prevails around us, that church is outmoded, it's a relic of the past, and it's useless and powerless, and we ought to move on to better things. So thank you, Lord, for the reminder that uh, the church is not just something that someone dreamed up and uh, ran its course and is now obsolete, but that this is your plan, Lord. That this is how you describe your most intimate relationship with your people. As your body and your bride, and your family, your children. Help us, Lord, to learn to think the way you think. And may that be reflected in this church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.